leadership as well. Uh, you just never know what uh, opportunities are going to open for you when you designate yourself as uh, the driver. And uh, usually that's the, the, the reason I get to preach at our youth camp every year, because I'm the one who drives our youth out to camp. And so the uh, usual response from Dr. Pollock is, uh, well, as long as you're driving out, you might as well preach while you're here. So uh, I perceive the same thing here this morning. But I do bring you greetings from the church in Indianapolis. We do remember you in prayer. Thank God for our fellowship with you. I had the privilege of being here uh, not real long ago when Dr. Messer was ordained. Uh, that was part of my role as moderator to be on hand to bring him the charge, and I trust you remember that charge and you're being true to it. And, uh, and it's been my privilege as the moderator of our denomination now to uh, bring charges to uh, a few others as well. I was in Orlando not long ago for the ordination and installation of Logan Elder there. Uh, from there we flew across the Caribbean to Santa Domingo in the Dominican Republic, where I had the privilege of giving the charge to Ramon Sosa, as well as having a, a part in welcoming that church into our denomination. So, uh, uh, so long as those are the roles of moderator, it's uh, not a burden at all, uh, but a great blessing. But uh, I certainly counted a privilege to be with you here today, and I would invite you to turn with me, if you would, to First Kings, First Kings chapter eighteen. In Indianapolis, we have been conducting studies on the prophet Elijah, and I want to bring one of those studies to you today. So 1 Kings chapter 18, we will read the first 16 verses of the chapter. And with God's word open before us, let's seek the Lord in prayer and ask the Lord now to speak to us through his word. Let's pray. O oh Lord, as we come into thy presence now with thy word open before us, we thank thee that we have a book that we can trust a book that is inspired of God and preserved by God, a book, O oh Lord, that is called a living word, quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we ask of thee today, Lord, that we may indeed discover it to be a living word to our souls. May the Holy Spirit bear witness to its truth and bring the application to every heart need. We thank thee, Lord, that when we gather in thy name to worship thee, that thou dost tend to thy sheep. May it please thee, Lord, to tend to us even now. And if there are any in our midst today that are strangers to thy grace who are yet outside the fold, O oh Lord, we pray especially for such as these, that thou wilt command the light to shine in their darkened hearts and enable them to see Jesus Christ. And may they be convicted of their sins and compelled to flee to him to the salvation of their souls. I am mindful, Lord, of my dependence upon thee. And so I plead the blood of Christ over my life and ask of thee, Lord, based on the merits of the blood, that thou wilt cleanse me and then fill me with thy spirit. And may it please thee to grant to me strength of heart and mind, clarity of thought and speech, but especially unction from on high, so the message will be perceived as the very word that God has for this people, for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First Kings chapter 18, we read in verse 1. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. 
And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab. And there was a sore famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took an hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into the land unto all fountains of water and unto all brooks. Peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. So they divided the land between them to pass throughout it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he knew him, and fell on his face, and said, Art thou that my lord Elijah? And he answered him, I am. Go, tell thy lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, What have I sinned, that thou wouldst deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? As the Lord thy God liveth, there is no nation or kingdom, whether my Lord hath not sent to seek thee. And when they said he is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and nation that they found thee not. And now thou sayest, Go, tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass, as soon as I am gone from thee, that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry thee whither I know not. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find thee, he shall slay me. But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. Was it not told my Lord what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord? How I hid an hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave? And fed them with bread and water. And now thou sayest, Go tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he shall slay me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 16. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. If I could call your attention in particular to the last part of verse 12, where we read, and these are the words of Obadiah, where he says, But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. I think given the courage and the boldness of Elijah, I think it would be fair to say that he wouldn't be an easy man to impress. When we come to chapter 19, we find him complaining to the Lord that he is the only prophet left and that they're seeking to kill him too. Not a word about those two groups of prophets hidden in a cave, and not a word about Obadiah, who served in the court of Ahab, and who risked his life in order to shelter those prophets and provide for them. I can't help but wonder if Elijah resembles a little bit the Apostle Paul along these lines. There was a time when Paul solicited Barnabas to go with him to revisit the churches that had been planted. And Barnabas was willing to accompany Paul, but thought that they should take John Mark along with them. But because Mark had left their first missionary journey early and had turned back, Paul did not want Mark to join them on the next journey, and he felt very strongly about that. Paul, simply put, was not impressed with John Mark. And so we read in Acts 15 and verse 39, And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. Oh, Paul was not an easy man to impress either. 
And so we come to 1 Kings chapter 18, where we discover Elijah on a mission once again. After what 1 Kings 18 and verse 1 calls many days, many days in which he abode with the widow of Zarephath, and knew the Lord's provision, even in the midst of famine and drought, even after many days, we see the Lord at last directing Elijah to present himself to King Ahab the second time. What a difference between this presentation, what it would be, with the first one. In chapter 17 and verse 1 of First Kings, we are first introduced to Elijah in that text. And Elijah comes out of nowhere to make the announcement that there would be no rain but by his word. We have no reason to think that Ahab even knew who Elijah was at that time. It probably didn't take him very seriously, at least not at the start. He certainly knew who Elijah was by the third year of the famine, when the Lord's word through Elijah had come to pass, and the land was knowing drought and famine. And now he must present himself to Ahab again, with King Ahab being fully aware that the word of the Lord had come to pass through Elijah's words. And you'll note from verse 2 that there is no hesitation on Elijah's part to obey the Lord when the Lord's word came to him. We can certainly draw an example from Elijah in this instance, one that we should emulate. There was no arguing with the Lord the way Ananias did when he was told to go lay hands on Saul of Tarsus. We read in Acts 9, Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call upon thy name. Oh, how easily Elijah might have reasoned the same way before the Lord. Lord, I know about this man, and I especially know about his wife, and what she's done to thy prophets. But there was no disputing on this occasion with Elijah and the Lord, nor was there any kind of arguing like that which took place even with Moses who insisted before God that he was not the man for the job of going to speak to Pharaoh. No, instead we read of Elijah, and it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab. Now, before Elijah would actually meet up with Ahab, he must first encounter another character, a man by the name of Obadiah. We're told in verse 3 that Obadiah was the governor of Ahab's house. He must have been, I suppose, a little bit like Joseph in Genesis 41, who was exalted to be governor over Pharaoh's house. We're told also in verse 3 something very important about Obadiah. It's a parenthetical statement, but it's also a very important statement. And so we read, Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Feared him greatly. Here was a man then with very strong respect and reverence toward the Lord he served. But oh, how Obadiah resisted the command of Elijah found in verse 8. As Elijah says to him, Go, tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here. Following this command, you might argue that an altogether different kind of fear grips Obadiah's heart. It says he feared the Lord greatly, now another fear grips his heart, and in verse 9 we read, And he said, this is Obadiah now speaking to Elijah, What have I sinned that thou wouldst deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? Obadiah, you see, had no assurance that this meeting would actually happen between 
Elijah and Ahab. He thought that the Spirit of the Lord would carry Elijah away. And when Ahab learned that Obadiah had met up with him but failed to apprehend him, then surely Ahab would certainly have Obadiah executed. And so what I read what amounts to a kind of prologue to the showdown that would take place between Elijah and Ahab and the prophets of Baal. What stands out to me in the narrative that we read this morning are these two competing fears. There's the fear of the Lord, and there's the fear of man. It's these two contrasting fears that I want to focus on this morning. And before we're through with this study, I want you to see how you can cultivate the right fear, and you need to conquer the wrong fear. Two competing fears, then. That's my title, that's my theme, and that's what I want to direct your attention to this morning. These two competing fears. Let's think first, then, on cultivating the right fear. Cultivating the right fear. I referenced already the words of verse 3. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. His godly fear becomes a point of emphasis in the narrative when Obadiah himself affirms it to Elijah in verse 12. But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth, Obadiah says. The thing to note in verse 3 is that it's the author of the book. It's the author of 1 Kings that makes this statement about Obadiah. And so you might argue that ultimately it's the Holy Spirit making the statement. For in 2 Peter 1.21 we're told, and you're familiar with it I'm sure, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now if all we had was Obadiah's own statement about his fear of God, we might have cause to wonder about it. We wouldn't wonder whether or not he claimed it. The inspiration of the Bible would certainly lead us to affirm that he did make the claim. But inspiration doesn't necessarily lead us to affirm the truth of every statement made in Scripture. Now let me qualify that statement lest uh, anyone fear what I've just said. The devil told Eve, that in the day she would eat of the forbidden fruit, she would not die, but would instead be like God. That was the devil's lie. And scripture records the devil's lie. But the fact that it does record it doesn't mean that the devil's lie was indeed truth and that Eve would not die. No, it only means that the account of the devil's lie is a true account. So in the narrative in 1 Kings 18, when we find the author of the book making an affirmation that Obadiah feared the Lord, and not only that he feared him, but that he feared him greatly, we can perceive Obadiah's own affirmation of his godly fear to be the truth. This becomes an important matter, you know, in your understanding of Scripture especially when it comes to analyzing the characters of the Bible, that you pay special attention to what the narrator of any particular book may say. This has reference, if I could, uh, uh, if you would indulge me in another illustration in the book of Job. When I taught through that book many years ago in our Sunday school class, I said, don't ever lose track of what the narrator is saying. Usually he just serves a very simple function of announcing the next speaker. Eliphaz said, then Job answered and said, and so on. But there are at least two chapters in the book where the narrator is sort of the main character, and that would be the first chapter of Job, where it is the narrator that speaks of the commendation that Job receives from God. Pay attention to the narrator of the book when you're reading historical narration. So Obadiah feared the Lord, 
and feared him greatly. And the manifestation of this godly fear is also given to us by both the narrator in 1 Kings and by Obadiah himself. Verses 3 and 4 give us the entire parenthetical statement of the author of 1 Kings when it says, Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took an hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Obadiah himself would cite this deed to Elijah to provide the evidence for his claim of having feared the Lord from his youth. Was it not told my Lord what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord? How I hid an hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water? Verse 13. It's readily apparent then that this man Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and that he feared him even from his youth. Here, then, is the kind of fear that every believer should want and every believer should cultivate. It's true, and Obadiah himself will demonstrate how fearful a character King Ahab was. He could and undoubtedly would have Obadiah executed if Obadiah told him he just met with Elijah, but then Elijah disappeared. I have no doubt that this was a grounded fear on the part of Obadiah. Ahab's hatred of Elijah notwithstanding, the words of Christ should be kept in mind when it comes to the believer's fear of the Lord Christ says in Matthew 10 and verse 27, What I tell you in darkness that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear that preach ye upon the housetops, and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Whenever I read those words, I'm reminded of an incident that took place when I worked in the printing industry. There was a man that I worked with there. He was not a believer, uh, obviously not a Christian, but he was very conservative in his political outlook, a Fox News junkie, Rush Limbaugh junkie, you could call him, and a very big uh, proponent of the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. And I can remember some discussions with this man, and he asked me if I owned a gun. And I said, no, I can't honestly say that I do. Maybe I should. Maybe someday I will. Uh, but today, I don't. And he proceeded to chide me for that. Oh, you really ought to have a gun. You know, you are so vulnerable without a gun. What's going to happen when... Somebody jumps out of the alley and shoots you. And I said to him in response, well, let's assume that this person does jump out and shoot me, kills me. What can he do to me after that? That kind of caught this guy by surprise. What can he do to me after he shot and killed me? And I answered, he can't do anything to me. I'm out of his reach now. I'm beyond him. And so far as he killing me, that, that issue isn't over. That'll be taken up on the judgment day. But I'm out of his reach. Fear him who can kill and who has the power and the authority to cast into hell. I have said on numerous occasions from my own pulpit that the fear of the Lord marks the beginning for the true Christian's knowledge and wisdom. The Christian life is sometimes likened to a race. And if you know nothing of the fear of the Lord, you haven't even stepped up to the starting line. Because this is the beginning. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Proverbs 16 and verse 6, By mercy and truth iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. 
And in Proverbs 19 and verse 23, the fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that hath it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. And in Psalm 19 and verse 9, that psalm that we sang this morning, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. I commend to you a study of that phrase, the fear of the Lord. You'll find it throughout Scripture, no less than 15 times in the book of Proverbs. And as you trace those occurrences, note its importance, pay attention to its benefits, take note of how it's learned or cultivated. It's something you see that needs to be learned, not simply academically, but experientially. You need to know the fear of the Lord. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 34, beginning in verse 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. O fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. And then the Lord himself extends his own personal invitation through the psalmist when we read in verse 11, Come ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I'm afraid that such a notion as the fear of the Lord is conspicuous in our day by its absence. Today the emphasis is on being casual. Uh, the fear of the Lord, you see, is not something that could be described as casual. It's something you gain through your knowledge of God himself. I reference the setting in which the Lord gave the Ten Commandments every time I'm referencing the Ten Commandments. And I reference that setting as being very instructional when it comes to learning the fear of the Lord. Listen to the words of Exodus 20 and verse 18. These words now follow the giving of the Ten Commandments. The Israelites have heard the voice of God. God himself has announced these Ten Commandments. And then following uh, God's announcement, we read in verse 18 of Exodus 20, and all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, and take note of this not, what Moses says now to them in response to this, he says, Fear not. For God is come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. Isn't it interesting and instructive to hear Moses say to the people, fear not. Their fear of the Lord, you see, was not simply to be a frightful fear by which they were afraid, Although I think we have to acknowledge there is a certain element of that. I think of uh, David and Goliath. You know how intimidating it was for any of the Israelites to stand before a 10 foot tall, uh, totally armed, armored giant that you're going to take on. Oh, that would be enough to make someone afraid. And it did make the Israelites afraid. Well, how much more when you think of God and his power and his majesty, his might. But Moses goes on to say, Fear not, for God has come to prove you that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. The fear of the Lord, you see, takes the believer beyond being afraid. There is, to be sure, a frightful aspect to it, but it doesn't end there. And if it does end there, you really haven't learned it. It takes him instead to what theologians often call reverential awe. So there is a spiritual sense in which God himself teaches the Christian the fear of the Lord. There certainly would have been 
reverential awe at the foot of Mount Sinai on that occasion when the Lord came down. And I believe that even more than the setting of Mount Sinai, the Christian learns the fear of the Lord at Mount Calvary. Here at the cross is where the attributes of God shine brilliantly. Here at the cross is the manifestation of God's justice. Here at the cross is the manifestation of his holiness. Here at the cross is the manifestation of his power, the power even of his wrath. But here at the cross is also to be found the demonstration of God's love and his grace and his mercy and his faithfulness. If you would learn the fear of the Lord, dear child of God, then make sure you spend much time at the cross gazing at one who was condemned in your place, redeeming you to himself that you might be brought into the family of God. Now there's one more thing we must note from Obadiah's fear of the Lord. And this I want parents especially to pay attention to and take to heart. Notice from verse 12 that Obadiah says, But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. I fear the Lord from my youth. It is true that God himself teaches the Christian the fear of God by the Christian's experiential knowledge of God. But it's also true that the fear of the Lord is something that is communicated and taught by parents to their children. Indeed, I dare say that it's one of the most important things that parents can teach to their children. Parents, do you want your children to turn away from sin? Teach them the fear of the Lord. For it is by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. Proverbs 16 and verse 6. And I might add here that where the fear of the Lord is absent, respect for any kind of authority breaks down. And that largely accounts for the state of our nation today. No fear of the Lord, and if there's no fear of the Lord, there's no respect for any authority. And do you want your children to live lives that are clean and enduring? Then teach them the fear of the Lord, for the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, Psalm 19 and verse 9. And do you want them to live lives that are full of purpose and meaning and satisfaction? Then they must be taught the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that hath it shall abide satisfied. Oh, it takes respect and reverential awe for the Lord for us to know our place and to find purpose and meaning in our lives here in this world. And the way that the fear of the Lord must be taught is certainly by precept, And by example, the Shorter Catechism can certainly be a useful tool in that regard. And your own attitude toward Christ and toward God's word and toward the worship of God and Christ will go a long way in teaching your children the fear of the Lord. And if they don't see that kind of respect, if they don't see that reverential awe exemplified by their parents... Well, don't be surprised then if your children know little or nothing of that fear. So we note that the fear of the Lord was something Obadiah knew from his youth. The fear of the Lord is the right kind of fear, therefore. It is this kind of fear that must be understood and must be cultivated. But we must move on to consider secondly and finally that there's a wrong kind of fear. And this wrong kind of fear needs to be conquered. There's a right kind of fear that needs to be cultivated. There's a wrong kind of fear that needs to be conquered. The narrative makes it very clear that there was another kind of fear that was competing against Obadiah's fear of the Lord. And this fear could be named uh, a number of different things. You could call it the fear of man. Obadiah was about scared to death of King Ahab, 
And what would happen if King Ahab were to discover that Elijah had been seen but then had escaped? Notice what we read in verse 9. This is Obadiah's response to Elijah's command that Obadiah go and tell Ahab that he's met with Elijah. And he said, what have I sinned that thou wouldst deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? And then he lays out his case for suggesting that Ahab would slay him. As the Lord thy God liveth, there is no nation or kingdom, whether my Lord hath not sent to seek thee. And when they said he is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and nation that they found thee not. Do you get the picture of what Obadiah is suggesting there? Oh, the king has sent out the surrounding nations. Is he there? And when they say, no, he's not, he says, swear to it that he's not there. Such was his venom, such was his hatred, and such was his intense desire to apprehend Elijah. So this does appear to be a perilous situation for Obadiah. He's aware of what Jezebel has already done to the prophets of the Lord. He's also aware of how angry King Ahab is with Elijah. This is definitely a case of the fear of man gripping Obadiah's heart. And I wonder this morning, how often does it grip your heart and mine? And even for far less serious things than what Obadiah faced. Earlier in the service, I quoted from Matthew 10 and verse 28, where Christ says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, In that same passage, Christ goes on to say, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Now I'm not about to suggest, based on Christ's statement, that you should mount the soapbox, so to speak, in the place where you're employed to where the first thing you do is step up somewhere and proceed to preach a sermon toward the people you work with. Though, mind you, and I suggested this in my church, I said if I ever heard of such a thing, you need not fear being brought under church discipline by us. But I don't know that that's exactly what the Lord has in mind. I can remember years ago when my family was traveling up to Wisconsin, We were taking a stretch break at one of those oases, they're called a truck stop, that's built over the interstate, and I'm sure you've seen those type of rest stops. We were making our way back toward the door we had entered when a man shouted out and asked if he could have everyone's attention. Excuse me, folks, can I have your attention, please? He yelled out, and he actually succeeded in getting the place to quiet down enough to listen to him for a moment. And once the place had quieted down, he announced very simply, Jesus Christ is coming soon. Well, good for that man. I said amen to his announcement. I don't know, though, that such a Bold move as that is what Jesus is necessarily looking for from his followers. What he is looking for, however, is those that are not ashamed to own his name. Those who, when they recognize an open door to speak for him, they will speak for him. And I have to honestly admit here that there have been times when I have prayed Lord, open a door for me to speak a word for you. And there immediately comes to my mind all sorts of doors that were opened for me that I failed to take advantage of. And I plead the blood over my failures and say, Lord, give me the grace to take advantage of open doors to speak for you. And so the Lord will not be ashamed of us as we are not ashamed of him. So Obadiah's fear could be labeled the fear of man. Obadiah's fear could also be named the fear of sin or the fear of judgment for sin. He bears something in common here with 
the widow of Zarephath in the previous chapter. You may remember, if you've read the story of Elijah, that when the widow's son died, she immediately took that harsh providence from God to be a form of judgment on her for her sins. What have I to do with you, O man of God, that uh, you bring my sins to remembrance today by taking the life of my son? Obadiah manifests the same fear. And again, the words of verse 9, And he said, What have I sinned, that thou wouldst deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? His fear was obviously misplaced. But having said that, sin is something that we should dread. Christ showed us just how much we should fear sin when he said in Matthew 5 and verse 29, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole man should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now, I don't believe that Christ is suggesting there that we literally maim ourselves. And if that were the case, and stop and think about it for a moment, if we were to literally gouge out our eyes or cut off our right hand, think of how many eyes would be gouged out and how many hands would be cut off in terms of what is viewed on the Internet these days. Oh, there would be a lot of people, wouldn't there, walking around with one less eye and one less hand, if that was taken to heart and if that was the Lord's meaning. When we studied the Sermon on the Mount a number of years ago, I devoted a study to that section of the Lord's Sermon, and I stated at that time that um, we are not literally to maim ourselves that way, but we are to hate and fear sin that much. We're not to treat it as casually as we are prone to do. And the way we pluck out our eyes or cut off our right hands is by preaching to ourselves. Preaching fire and brimstone to ourselves with regard to our own sin. Recognize what your sin deserves. It does deserve everlasting condemnation. But then also recognize what your sin did to Christ. It brought down the hammer on the nails that were driven into his hands and feet. Your sins and my sins crucified the Prince of Life. That should create in your minds and hearts a dread towards sin as well as a love toward Christ. So Obadiah's fear could be called the fear of man. This fear is addressed by Solomon in Proverbs 29, verse 25, where he says, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. It could also be called the fear of sin, how Obadiah feared that Elijah's command to go tell Ahab Elijah was there was an act of judgment on him for his sins. It could also be called the fear of death. What have I sinned that thou wouldst deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? Obadiah says in verse 9, the fear of death is dealt with in Hebrews as a fear that brings a person into bondage. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The fear of death can subject a man to bondage. All of these fears then had gripped Obadiah, the fear of man, the fear of judgment for sin, and the fear of death. I have to say, with regard to this fear of death, and in light of the text that I just quoted from Hebrews, 
I was very happy to observe yesterday that our brother Greg is certainly delivered from that fear. My, how the man glows, even as he awaits the Lord's call. I remember, and we had this discussion with Greg yesterday. I was recalling from this verse that it brings to my mind uh, an elder from our Greenville Church many years ago. Some who uh, were at faith three years ago would remember Horace Driggers. Dr. Cairns referred to him as the patriarch of Traveler's Rest. Um, Advanced in his years, he was devoted to taking care of his wife. He himself was in and out of the hospital repeatedly uh, with heart issues. And I remember one occasion in particular where Horace was back. He was out of the hospital again. He was in church that night, and he asked Dr. Cairns if he could address the congregation And, uh, of course, Dr. Cairns allowed him. How do you deny the patriarch of Traveler's Rest an opportunity to address the congregation? And he stood up and he spoke to us and he said, I could see the light of heaven shining under the door. And I desperately wanted to go through that door into heaven. But it's as if the Lord had said to me, Horace, not yet. You have to spend a little more time in this world. The time isn't come, and you could almost see Horace heave a sigh because he was going to stay with us a little bit longer. And I remember when I saw that and heard that, the thought that struck me is, here is a man who has been delivered from the bondage of the fear of death. And I'm happy to report that Greg Munger falls into that same category based on my visit with him yesterday. So there are competing fears that are found in the hearts and minds even of Christians. And the thing we must consider in closing this study today is how do we conquer the fear of man and how do we cultivate uh, the fear of the Lord? And we could devote much more time to answering this question than what I'm going to devote to it now in this message. Suffice it to say here today that in conquering wrong fears and cultivating the right fear, we should recognize just what kind of spirit that God himself gives to Christians. And that's found in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The spirit of fear that Paul has in view here is an attitude of mind and heart that arises carnally or may even be planted and magnified by the devil. The spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind amounts to the spirit of the gospel. You are the recipient of resurrection power as a Christian, and the same power that saved you will be the power that upholds you. You are also the recipient of the love of God. Spend much time at the foot of the cross when you find yourself doubting God's love and gripped by carnal fears, And from a sound mind you may reason that since Christ loved you, nothing will ever sever you from that love. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors, Paul writes in Romans 8.37. And you might ask, how? How is it the case that in all these things we are more than conquerors? Well, it is so through him that loved us. Oh, may his love indeed rule your heart and your life. In the midst of your failures, for those times when you, like Peter, perhaps have denied your Lord, then know as well that not even your failures or denials can sever you from Christ's love any more than Peter's denials cut him off from Christ's love. The Lord could love you no more for your successes. He loves you no less for your failures. His love is incredible. And his love is steadfast and sure. And nothing can sever you from it. And when you know that, and what that amounts to in essence is believing the gospel. 
So by believing the gospel, you cultivate the right kind of fear by cultivating the fear of the Lord. I remember when Mark Allison was still uh, on this side of the river. He and I worked at Wade Hampton High School together as janitors during the summer, during all the cleanup operations over there. And we would uh, drive to Wade Hampton. It wasn't very far from where we lived. And Dr. Allison would drive, and we would usually have a time of prayer, even in the short ride over there. And I remember one instance in particular, I've never forgotten it, when Dr. Allison prayed, Lord, help me to believe the gospel today. Help me to believe in your love today. Help me to see Christ, my Savior, today. And he would follow that up by saying, because, Lord, if I believe the gospel today, I believe that I will be equipped and prepared for anything that in thy providence comes my way. And that is indeed the case. So let's cultivate the right kind of fear, the fear of the Lord, and let's conquer the wrong kind of fears by being more than conquerors through him that loved us. May the Lord himself aid us in our knowledge and experience of the fear of the Lord. Amen. Turn it back to you, brother. Thank you, brother. Heavenly Father, we come today mindful that we've heard what we see demonstrated in this believer of a day long ago and demonstrated from throughout Your Word is true indeed. We need the help of Your Spirit that the many times where we would be tempted to give in to the fear of man Lord, we know that can be not just the wicked, bloodthirsty, unconverted man, but even fear of those that name your name. Look at one another more than look at you. Lord, help us to cultivate a fear of God. <coughs> Give us by your Spirit growth that those lesser and yet proper forms of the fear, fear of judgment and fear of sin, would mature into those precious forms. The fearing, the pushing away anything that would hinder a growing, happy relationship with our God. To desire our God more than anything else. Lord, give us such godly fear. But bless Your Word. Prosper it to every part. And be with us as we part one from another. And bring us again tonight to gather in and sing praises to a God who's worthy. And again, have Your Word open before us. We pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.